Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray as your word is scattered like seed, that it would find good soil in our hearts, that it would be not uh, snatched up by Satan, that it would not uh, spring up in rocky ground but have no root, that it would not grow among the thorns and be uh, choked out by the cares of the world, but that it would find good soil and bear fruit for God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, today we draw our study of 1 Peter that we've been in for the better part of five, six months to a close. As you will remember, Peter has written this letter to Christians in what is now Turkey to encourage them to continue to stand firm in their faith and set their hope on God's future promises, in spite of the increasing trials and suffering they are being subjected to because of their allegiance to Jesus. Peter tells them from the very first line of the letter that while they are indeed chosen by God and precious in His sight, they are yet exiles in the world and can expect to be treated as such. But though they'll be opposed and even abused in various ways by those around them, Peter is careful never to refer to those who are responsible for the Christian suffering as their enemies. In fact, they're, they're to live and speak in such a way that those who speak evil against them would actually end up joining them in glorifying God. Here at the end of the letter, however, we get the only explicit mention of the one who is truly the Christian's enemy, the one who stands behind the opposition leveled at them by others. See, our true enemies are not other people, not even those who oppose us or slander us. Our true enemy is Satan. And although he is a doomed and defeated enemy, as we've seen already in the book, that Christ has been exalted through his death and resurrection and ascension, all the powers and principalities of spiritual evil have been subjected to him. And even though Satan is doomed and defeated, he is still dangerous. And so Peter tells us that we must not become complacent. In verse 8, here he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. It's a refrain that we hear over and over again in the book. Pay attention. Don't go to sleep. Watch out. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Throughout the book, we've seen that God has a distinct design of His own for allowing suffering and trials in our lives, a design for good, for our good, our ultimate good, to conform us to the image of His Son. And yet Satan desires to hijack those trials and use them for his own malevolent purposes. So in response, Peter calls Christians to resist him, firm in your faith. He tells us, in effect, don't let the devil have his way with your suffering. So this morning, as we look mainly at verses 6 through 11, which is the close of the, the body of the letter, I want to highlight first the devil's prowling, and then second, the Christian's 
resistance, the devil's prowling and the Christian's resistance. First then, the devil's prowling, we'll look mainly at verse 8. What does Peter mean here in this verse, in verse 8, that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? It's clearly metaphorical language, but what is it metaphorical for? We hear a verse like this, that the devil is prowling around looking to devour someone, and we might find ourselves thinking about some grisly scene from a horror movie. We might think the devil's prowling and roaring and devouring looks like some kind of extraordinary, spine-tingling, paranormal activity, demonic possession, things like that. But much of the devil's work does not come in the forms uh, of things that we would consider extraordinary manifestations of his, his power. So if you're only looking for fireworks, you'll be blissfully unaware of the match being thrown on the kindling underneath you. And the devil would love to have it that way. He'd love for you to be on guard for extraordinary attacks if it means you'll just ignore the ordinary ones. For Christians, Satan's assaults far more often come in forms that are quite ordinary. We would do well to remember that the two names that we use most often for our enemy, the devil and Satan, mean the slanderer and the accuser. Those are Satan's primary weapons. He uses weapons like accusation, sowing discord, malice, temptation, fear, unbelief. And especially relevant for our text this morning, he uses suffering. Like I said before, the devil hijacks God's providential allowance of suffering in our lives and attempts to use it for his own purpose. We see a clear example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming proud. So God has a purpose for allowing some kind of suffering in Paul's life. But this thorn is also said to be a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. That is, while God used this suffering to sanctify Paul, Satan intended to use the very same suffering to torment him. Now, Satan can't thwart God's purpose in your trials, but he can and will try to sell you a bill of goods about them, get you to disbelieve and disobey God because of your suffering. And that's, I think, what Peter means by devouring here, getting Christians to doubt and so tempt them to unbelief and disobedience, to abandon Christ. I want to highlight just four ways in which the devil tries to use our, our suffering for this purpose, to throw us into doubt and despair. These are four ways the devil tries to devour us, so to speak the lion chasing the gazelle on National Geographic. As we'll see, each one ties back into what Peter says we must do to resist him. First, Satan wants you to doubt God's promises in your suffering. Satan wants you to doubt God's promises in your suffering. As we said throughout the study of 1 Peter, God allows trials into our lives to accomplish His purpose in us. And at the same time, Uh, As we are suffering in the present, we also have present promises, divine guarantees for the future that act as a a ballast for our soul to keep us afloat in the storms of suffering. 
And much of 1 Peter has been about how those promises buoy us as we go through trials. But because we don't have access to a divine meteorological report on when the storms are coming and where and for how long and why, it can be a prime place for Satan to attack us, to sow doubt. And the first place he attacks is our confidence in God's promises, both the the truth of his word, what he promises, and the faithfulness of his character, that he will actually do what he's promised. Getting us to doubt God's God's word, its truthfulness, and his character in speaking it, his own sincerity and faithfulness, is in a sense the oldest trick in the book. It's basically the tack he took with Eve back in the garden. Did God really say? You'd think that we wouldn't keep falling for it, that we'd know better by now. But over centuries, we human beings have over and over again proven ourselves quite susceptible to this attack and never more than when we are suffering. In the face of Trials and pain and hardship of all kinds, our family resemblance to our first parents comes out and we begin to disbelieve God's Word and doubt His character just like Adam and Eve did. Satan wants you to think that God has promised something other than what He has actually promised, like if you come to Jesus, then nothing bad will ever happen to you, with the result that when your misplaced expectation is disappointed, you blame God rather than examining your unfounded assumptions. At the same time, Satan wants you to doubt God's sincerity and faithfulness to do what he's promised. He wants you to think that, yes, God said he would do this, but he's not serious. And he's definitely not serious when it comes to you. You can't trust him. He doesn't care for you. Satan wants you to doubt God's promises in your suffering. And then second, more than just wanting you to doubt God's earnestness and and faithfulness to do what He's promised, Satan also wants you to doubt that God is even, even able to do what He has promised. He wants you to doubt not only God's sincerity, but also His ability. Since it's after Thanksgiving, and I can now legally use Christmas movies as illustrations, think of it this way. Satan wants you to be like Susie just before the end of Miracle on 34th Street. At the end of the movie, and the movie was made in like 1947, so I don't feel like I have to say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it by now, that's your fault. At the end of the movie, Kris Kringle appears not to have gotten Susie the big gift that she asked for. What does she say when he tries to explain? He says, I'm sorry, Susie, I tried. And Susie says, you couldn't get it because you're not Santa Claus. That's why. You're just a nice old man with whiskers, like my mother said, and I shouldn't have believed you. It's not that she thought Mr. Kringle wasn't good or sincere in his desire. It's not that he wouldn't get it for her. It's that he couldn't. Satan would love for you to believe that God isn't sincere in his promises, yes, but he'd be just as happy for you to believe that God is really sincere but lacks the power to do what he promised. To believe that God is just a nice old man with whiskers and you shouldn't have believed him. He wants you to doubt not only God's promises, but the extent of his power. He wants you to think that there is some authority in heaven and on earth that as yet does not belong to Jesus. And this suffering that you're enduring must be part that he doesn't control. 
Satan wants you to doubt God's ability to do what he's promised in your suffering. And third, Satan wants you to believe that you are all alone in your suffering. Satan wants you to believe that you are all alone in your suffering. Certainly, he wants you to believe that God has abandoned you, either by being unfaithful or impotent or both, as we've just seen. But then beyond that, he wants you to believe that you are alone, both in the sense that you are utterly unique in what you are suffering and utterly unsupported in what you are suffering. He wants you to believe that your suffering is utterly unique, that is, that you alone are the only one who is suffering like this. There's no one on earth who has gone through what you are going through. And now it is true that your trials are indeed yours. No one else can say they have experienced the exact same thing in the exact same way. But Satan wants you to believe more than that. He wants you to think that your suffering is like a new disease that doctors have never seen before and that you are the only patient and there is no cure. He wants you to think that your suffering is utterly unique. He wants to have you believe that you are utterly unsupported in your suffering. It's not just that you're the only one suffering the way that you are, but also that you are suffering that way entirely alone, without anyone to help, without anyone to keep you afloat. He wants you to be like Elijah back in 1 Kings 19. You might remember the story. Elijah's just won a dramatic showdown with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But Jezebel, the idolatrous queen of, of Israel, didn't take too kindly to her idols being mocked or the loyalty of her people being challenged, and so she sent her forces to chase Elijah out into the wilderness. Throughout 1 Kings 19, we read about Elijah's experience hiding in the wilderness, and, and God comes and, and asks him, Elijah, why are you out here? What are you doing out here? And Elijah says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's despair is compounded by the fact that he thinks he is the only faithful Israelite left. There is no one else. He is entirely alone. We'll come back to that because he's not right. But just notice that Elijah's experience of suffering is dramatically affected by his sense of aloneness. He's the only one left suffering as he is, and there is no one to help, or so he thinks. Satan wants you to believe that you are utterly alone in your suffering. And then lastly, Satan wants you to rely on yourself to deal with your suffering. He wants you to rely on yourself to deal with your suffering. This is sort of the logical outworking of the previous tactics. If you believe that you are all alone in your suffering and that God is either unwilling or unable or both to help, then this is the only outcome that's left. If no one else can be trusted, then all you have to rely on is in your suffering is yourself. And that attitude of self-sufficiency will lead you either to pride because you have a, an inflated view of your own ability to deal with what you're facing, or it will lead you to despair because you know your own inability to deal with what you're facing, or it'll do both. It'll first lead you to pride, and then once that doesn't work, it'll lead you to despair. It's sort of like the child who's convinced they can do something themselves, and when they find that they can't, rather than asking for and receiving help, they just break down into tears. 
Of course, I don't speak from personal experience. Asking for help never crosses their minds. The only alternatives are, I can do it myself or it can't possibly be done. Self-sufficiency will blind you that way. Satan will do whatever he can to make you think that the only hope you have is to rely on yourself. And when that fails, you'll be thrown into despair because you were your only hope. And mark well, the pride that says, I am my only hope, and the despair that says there is no hope are both diametrically opposed to the faith that says, I have set my hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith says there is hope, but it doesn't come from within me. My hope is anchored outside of me in Jesus. In these ways, Satan would would hijack the trials that God allows in your life in order to make you doubt and despair. And as a result, Peter will say in his second letter to become ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus, Satan can't steal you away. Your redemption in Christ is an irreversible reality. But he can seek to make you as ineffective and unfruitful a follower of Jesus as possible. And though Satan is cunning, we are not ignorant of his schemes. So the devil prowls, but the Christians are called to resist him at every point of this attack. So we move now to the Christians' resistance, verses 6 and 7 and verses 9 through 11. As he says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In verse 9, Peter commands his readers, resist him, firm in your faith. But just as Satan's prowling and devouring might look a little bit different than we first thought, so too are the tactics that we are given to mount this resistance. We are not being called to resist in ways that will look like we're putting up a spirited fight. In fact, it might not seem like much of a resistance at all, at least on the outside. But we must be reminded that our battle is not against flesh and blood, and therefore our weapons cannot be what would seem good or impressive to our flesh. We cannot operate according to worldly wisdom in this spiritual warfare. We need to fight the good fight of faith according to God's design in His might and with the weapons and tactics that He gives. With that in mind, this is how Peter tells us we are to resist the devil, how, how you can avoid being devoured. Again, four ways, each corresponding to one of Satan's avenues of attack. We'll run back them in reverse order. First, we're to humble ourselves and cast our cares on the Lord. Humble ourselves and cast our cares on the Lord. Satan wants you to rely on yourself to deal with your suffering, but Peter says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Our response to suffering is not to be self-sufficiency but humble dependence on God. We humble ourselves before God by depending on Him and not just, uh, not on ourselves. We, we, we entrust ourselves to His care, to His justice rather than our own. This is what Peter has said a few times in the book, most recently in the end of chapter 4, 
We are to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. We humble ourselves in faith that He will take care of exalting us, that we don't need to accomplish that ourselves. We humble ourselves before God by casting our anxieties on Him and trusting that they are safe with Him because He cares for us rather than trying to manipulate our way out of anxiety. I've struggled deeply with anxiety for as long as I can remember. And to some extent, this verse can be trotted out in very well-meaning but very unhelpful ways. Oh, you're, you're really anxious, huh? Well, you know, just, uh, just cast your anxieties on the Lord and He cares for you. Why don't you just do that? I'd never thought of that. I, it, it's like you're just telling somebody, well, you're anxious. Well, you know, like, just stop being anxious. Oh, brilliant. Let me try that next time. If you're like me and you struggle with anxiety, you know that despite the good intentions of our friends, such counsel is often quite unhelpful and downright discouraging. Even so, we must be careful that we don't therefore look past this verse as if it was some sort of trite aphorism designed only for the inside of a greeting card. We really can cast our anxieties on the Lord, and we can do so because He cares for us. And that doesn't mean that we immediately experience absolute and permanent freedom from anxiety. Oh, how I wish it did. But it does mean that the Lord invites us to come to Him with our concerns, with our burdens, with our cares, to lay them before Him in faith. Paul uses the same language in, in Philippians 4 when he says that we are not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We are anxious, and especially so about our suffering, our trials. We're invited to come to God and talk to Him about it to make our requests known to Him. Prayer is a demonstration of humility, a means by which we express both our need and our utter dependence on God. Prayer is the opposite of proud self-sufficiency. While Satan wants our suffering to drive us further into ourselves, God calls us to lean more completely into Him. You're so weighed down with cares and anxieties that you can't even stand. Satan wants you to keep trying to stand on your own. God is calling you to just lean all your weight on the chair that he's provided for you. Prayer is the means by which we admit that we can't solve our problems and the means by which we speak to him who can actually do something about our problems. Prayer is a means by which we just collapse into Jesus who cares for us. So a question to ask yourselves when I'm suffering, when I'm anxious, am I as willing and as quick to talk to God about it as I am to complain about it to others? Yes, there's absolutely a place for the ministry of others in our lives to encourage us in the midst of our suffering. We'll get to that presently. But I'm afraid that we are more prone than we may realize or admit to rely on ourselves or on others in the place of depending on God. I know I'm guilty of this. In fact, just recently, as recently as this week, I was wrestling with anxiety about something in particular and bemoaning the fact uh, to myself that there was no one that I could talk to about it. And then it hit me like a sledgehammer. Yeah, no one. 
you know, except God. And here's the thing. God's the only one who can actually really do anything about it. Anyone else I talk to could say, oh, that must be so hard. But they can't do anything about it. Only God can actually do anything about it. The fact that it took me that long to get there in this particular situation shows me something about just how deep my self-sufficiency runs. Satan wants us to rely on ourselves, try to solve problems and get out of suffering by means of our flesh, but God calls us to resist Him, not by being strong and doing it ourselves, but rather by looking to Him in humble dependence expressed in believing prayer. We're to humble ourselves and cast our cares on the Lord. And second, we need to know that we are not alone in our suffering. We need to know that we are not alone in our suffering. Satan wants you to believe that you are, in fact, all alone. But Peter says, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Part of your resistance against the lies of Satan is knowing and believing that you are not alone. Remember the story of Elijah. He sits on the mountainside and complains that he's the only one left who is faithful to God, the only one who is suffering as he is. And in his response to Elijah, God says to Elijah, actually, Elijah, you're wrong. This is a paraphrase. Actually, Elijah, you're wrong. It might seem that way to you, but you're not the only one left. In fact, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Elijah's suffering had blinded him to the fact that he was not the only one left. He was not alone in his suffering. And Christian, neither are you alone in your suffering. The same kinds of suffering are being endured by your brothers and sisters both here and and around the world and have been endured by your brothers and sisters across the centuries. You do not have a disease that no one has ever seen before and for which there is no cure. That's not to relativize or minimize your suffering, saying, oh, other people deal with it, it's no big deal. No, not at all. But it is to put it in proper context. You're not the only one suffering, and you're not consigned to suffer by yourself. And that is important for you to know because suffering thrives in isolation. It's like a greenhouse. That's right where Satan wants you where you think that no one can help, where His is the only voice you hear, where He can convince you that no one else cares about you, no one else could understand, no one else would want to help you bear your burdens. But that's not true. If you're a Christian, you've been placed into a a family, the church, which exists in part so that members will have the same care for one another. But this is hard because so often we hide our suffering from one another and present carefully curated pictures of our lives that bear only a passing resemblance to reality. We think that suffering is a sign of weakness or some kind of moral deficiency. We think that the church isn't a place for sufferers, it's a place for people who have it all together, sort of like how if we're not careful, we can give the impression that the church is a museum for perfect saints, not a hospital for broken sinners. But, but that's why we're here. We're sinners who need and who have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. 
And we're sufferers who need and who have a great all-sufficient God. The church is not for perfect people, not for people who are not suffering. The church is for people who say, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. It's for people who say, I am suffering. I have a great need of Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. So we can be honest with one another, not only about our sin, but also about our suffering. But that requires humility. Bringing our suffering to the family, being honest about it, allowing others to minister to us and encourage us in it is one of the ways that God has designed to care for us in our suffering. We must be careful that we do not ask God to help us and then refuse the care of those whom He has sent to provide the help we asked for. Satan wants your suffering to drive you away from dependence on God away from vulnerability with others. And so Peter says that in order to resist him, we need to do the opposite, take our suffering to God in dependence and be open with, with him about it and with others. Humility, in humility, receiving care and support from them in Jesus' name. And so, friends, please do not suffer in silence. You have brothers and sisters here who love you, who care about you, who desire to minister to you, in the midst of your trials. You might think, no one cares about me. But friend, that is a lie from the devil. Will you give the body of Christ the privilege of walking alongside you and helping you bear your burdens? Because you are not alone in your suffering. If you're a Christian, you have a family to support you. But even more than that, you have a God who is both able and faithful to do what He's promised. Satan would have you doubt God's ability to keep His Word. But Peter tells us in no uncertain terms that God has the power to do all that He has promised. And so we are to trust that. A third tactic to Resist Satan. Trust that God is able to do all that He's promised. We see this especially in two places here in this passage. First in verse 6, Peter says that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then again in verse 11, this closing doxology, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That word dominion is the same as the word mighty in verse 6. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God to whom belongs might forever and ever. The language here evokes the description of the Exodus when God is said to have led His people out of their suffering in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And the same God who rescued His people out of Egypt knows how to rescue His elect exiles in the world and deliver them safely into His heavenly kingdom. To use Isaiah's language, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that is, it is not too weak, that it cannot save. God is not just a nice old man with whiskers and nothing more. He is able to do all that He has promised. In fact, Scripture says He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. You might be facing something right now that seems impossible to you. There seems to be no way out, no resolution in sight. 
Do you believe that God is able to do far more abundantly than all you could ask or think? Not only can He fulfill all that He's promised, but He can do so in ways far beyond what we could ask Him, beyond what we could even conceive in our minds. God is an expert at bringing solutions where we say, I would have never thought it was possible, but God. Satan would drive you to despair and self-reliance by convincing you that God is not able to do anything about your suffering. By the same token, convincing you that you are able to do something about it where he is not. Satan would drive you to despair by convincing you that God's time frame is not adequate, that he's not doing things fast enough. In fact, the fact that he is not done exactly while you have asked him to relieve your suffering means that he doesn't care about you or that he is unable to do anything about your suffering or both. But Peter says that part of our resistance of the devil here is to call that out for the lie that it is, to trust that what God says about himself is true, that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. We must confess with Jeremiah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God is more than just great. He's also good. He's more than just able. He's also faithful. And so forth. While Satan would have you doubt that God will be faithful to his promises, Peter assures us that God will do exactly as he has promised. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's a lot there, but the key word is will. It's a promise for the future. God himself will do this. In the end, God will make everything right. And Satan wants you to think that God will not be faithful in the future, future, that there's no restoration on the other side of suffering. He wants you to think that God is not trustworthy to do this, and so you should take matters into your own hands. Forget God. He clearly doesn't care about me. He clearly can't do anything. You should focus on getting that safety, that security, that stability that you long for now because it's not coming from Him. But that would be the polar opposite of everything that Peter has been saying for basically the entire letter. And Peter says, yes, we are suffering for a little while. He used the same language about our suffering in chapter 1. That for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. But this little while is, is for a divinely designed purpose. It has a divinely designed end point and a divinely designed outcome that results in our salvation and inexpressible joy. The whole letter is oriented toward that future, banking on the promises of God, thinking that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so we bear this light and momentary affliction because it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Peter 
Peter wants his readers to bank on the promises of God, and God doesn't forget his promises, nor does he forget those to whom he has promised. He called us by grace. He caused us to be born again. He promised us eternal glory in Christ, and so he will fulfill it. If you find yourself hopeless this morning, then, friend, entrust yourself to Jesus. Come to him by faith. Receive the life and salvation that he offers by grace. And join us as heirs of this hope. Christ has never rejected any who come to him. And he has never failed to do all that he has promised, and he won't start with you. You might say, well, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like he's failed me. You need to take the blinders off. Lift up your eyes. A light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. And this is our hope while we suffer as exiles in the world. Recall what we said when we looked the idea of hope back in chapter 1. Hope is not wishful thinking about an uncertain future. It's the eager anticipation of an absolutely certain future. A future made absolutely certain for us because of the death and resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. And if you entrust yourself to Him as Lord and Savior now, though you will be regarded as an exile in the world, and though you will suffer for His sake, you will have this certain hope for the future an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. And you yourself will likewise be kept by God's power through faith for this salvation, and we know it is true because this is what God, who never lies, has promised in his word. So we end our study of 1 Peter with Peter's own words. Brothers and sisters, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you are trustworthy and true, that these words are trustworthy and true. We can bank on your promises, that we can lean ourselves on you in faith. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us Work in us by your word and spirit to believe what you have written and to resist the devil and his lies. Feed us with truth. Strengthen us in our suffering. Help us to trust in your eternal promises. In Jesus.